Alrighty, well, hey, come on back and uh, you guys can open your Bibles then to chapter 34 of the book of Jeremiah. We're, we're really going through it fast now, aren't we? And we're getting through 51, that's where we're headed, 51 chapters. And we're just going to tackle 34 tonight. <laughs> that's funny. And just sort of savor it, right? But let me just tell you something about Jeremiah. I want to orient you to Jeremiah here, reorient you. And that's this, is that Jeremiah was called in chapter 1. He was given his commission. He was given his plans, his marching orders. That's chapter 1. And then for 32 chapters... Jeremiah delivers messages to the people of Judah, okay? And really, it's sort of the same message over and over again. And you're going to hear more of the same message tonight, but with a different emphasis. And that's, you know, the sins of the nation. And he, God asks Jeremiah to go stand right in the temple areas while there are festivals going on and give these really hard judge, uh, words of judgment prophetic words of judgment. And remember, I always marvel at this. He comes from a priest's family. So God was asking him not only to talk to the people, but he was talking to his family about how they sort of failed. What a hard message. And he talks about the coming Babylonian invasion and how that's not something to be to run from, but to actually lean into. And we talked about how chastisement is something to lean into because if you're being chastised, that means you have a Father in heaven. We don't like the word chastisement, and yet chastisement's good for us. And so we had that. And we had uh, messages on the potter's house. There were messages to the leaders. And uh, last week, uh, Xander took us a little bit through uh, the, the back half of National Restoration But now what we come to is Jeremiah's ministry now sort of shifts gears. And in 34, which is what we'll tackle tonight, through 39, Jeremiah is speaking of ministry during the siege. And I mean the siege of Babylon, the Babylonians taking Uh, the uh, southern kingdom up into Babylon. And he's actually, before it begins, he's going to talk to two kings. King Zedekiah, we'll see that tonight. If you don't have my chicken scratch, there's copies on the back. This will help you immensely if you can ever decipher it. It's the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah that I wrote down in hand, handwritten, uh, but it just helps me immensely. So if you want to get that, and notice if you have my chicken scratch, the last one there, the kings of Judah, is Zedekiah. So we're going to be talking about the last king before they're pulled out into Babylon, okay? So that's what we're going to do tonight. Next week, we're going to talk about King Jehoiakim. Well, anyway, that's where we are. We're at about 588 B.C. And that's important because... Remember, the Babylonians took the southern kingdom out in three waves, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and the final death blow is 586 B.C., and this is happening, this chapter, about two years prior to when the final blow comes, which reminds me to tell you that Jeremiah is not in chronological order. It's, it's as if Jeremiah is taking, you know, you ever made a scrapbook for athletic events for somebody or something or whatever? Well, I haven't, but somebody did for me once, and it's not exactly in chronological order. It's just sort of the events in there, and that's sort of what Jeremiah's like, okay? So that's where we are, and here's what the Word of the Lord says in chapter 34 Verse 1, follow along with me. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, 
Catch this now. Here's another thing. All the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from his hand, but surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. In other words, you're going to die a natural death, okay? You shall die in peace as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of, U, uh, uh, of Judah. Now, skip with me just a little bit. Over into verse, uh, here we go, verse 19. Actually, go to 20. <laughs> I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, uh, their dead bodies shall be meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hands of their enemies, into the hands of those who seek their life, and into the hands of the king of Babylon's army, which he uh, has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to the city, Jerusalem. In other words, something's happened here that we're going to talk about here in a minute, where the Babylonians in around 588 B.C. come around the city, and there's the city of Jerusalem and two additional cities that are only left. Did you catch it? Lachish and Azekah. They're the only two outposts. It's Jerusalem and those two cities, and that's it, and the Babylonians win. But something happens, and they leave the city, or most of their forces go somewhere else, and it says there, right after the return to the city, they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. And where they go is told to us in Jeremiah 37, 5 through 10 or so, and here's where they go. There's an uprising by Egypt. Now remember, Babylon's on one side of Israel or Judah, Egypt's on another, and they're fighting for the, the territory in between. And so Egypt and Babylon are sort of fighting this out. And remember, there's going to be a really famous battle further in time, closer to 586 B.C., where the Babylonians deliver the death blow uh, at Carchemish. I told you about that last time, I think, that I taught in 586, early 586 B.C. So they're continuing to fight this out. But the point I'm trying to make here is, in 588, they've got the city surrounded. Two other cities they need to take care of are still holding out. But something happens, and some of the forces of Babylon go and fight somewhere against Egypt. You getting it? Because that's really important for the story today. So let's go back, and let's look at the beginning of this chapter. And i, I got to give you some history. I know, I know, but if you know the history the spiritual application will pop to you. It'll just pop right out. And that's this. This is, again, as you know by now, the prophecy against Zedekiah. Uh, this prophecy came in probably around the 10th or 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. Zedekiah reigned from 597 B.C., to 586 B.C., and it's about the 10th or 11th year. And you see, and we know from, from, or 
from extra-biblical history, but also from the biblical history in the Kings and the Chronicles, that Nebuchadnezzar has now circled the city. But they're going to go away to go fight Egypt, just like I said. So he withdraws for a brief time to fight Egypt in the south. And we get that. So we've got all of that. So they get some sort of, listen, you've been given these prophecies. Think about this. Think about the whole book of Jeremiah. You've been given these prophecies that there's going to be judgment. And in fact, he says to the people of uh, uh, Judah through Jeremiah, if you want to be a dead, stinking fig, a fruit that smells, then guard your homeland and stay in Judah. But if you want to be fruitful and aromatic and, you know, pleasant and all that sort of thing, I want you to submit to the judgment that I'm bringing upon your land, and I want you to go to Babylon, and I want you to establish homes and houses, and I want you to integrate into the society. And we talked about that, how we're to lean into the chastisement and learn from it, right? And wherever we go, even in the midst of the enemy, we're to impact the culture. We talked about all of that. But you see, there's still some here, especially the king, who are hoping because the, force, or the forces have weakened around Jerusalem that maybe, possibly, hopefully, God was just mistaken and we're going to not have to leave our land. See, that's what's going on here. So the word came to Jeremiah, verse 1, when Nebi was king, and all, all the kingdoms of the earth, look, he had, if you go back and read in Daniel 3 and Daniel 4, his kingdom at this time was so immense, so incredible. Uh, his wife was from a mountain region, uh, and so what he did in the city of Babylon, you know the hanging gardens we sort of tried to think about his plants and all that sort of thing. And I think that was part of it. But his wife was a mountaineer. She loved the mountains. He actually tried to build a mountain in the city so that his wife could enjoy it. The Euphrates right, ran right through the city of Babylon. And the palaces, they have reconstructions of them on the Internet, are, it was so ornate and so big. Uh, it was just amazing. And his kingdom just spread throughout all the ancient world. And I want you to see that it wasn't just the Babylonians that came against Jerusalem here, apparently, but everybody under his dominion came. I mean, this was going to be a, and was a, knockout punch. But because of Egypt, they relented for a time or got weaker, and there was some sort of, I don't know, hope that they wouldn't have to go to Babylon. Well, you keep going on, and you see here uh, um, this. The Lord God of Israel, go speak to Zedekiah, he tells Jeremiah. And he tells him, thus says the Lord, he says this, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. Now, think about that. Here you see the troops moving away, going away, and your hope is in one thing, and yet God's word is telling him the exact opposite. You all tracking with me? And what God's word is saying is, I'm going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. In other words, hey, uh, Zedekiah, you're not just fighting the Babylonians here. (laughs) I'm behind the Babylonians. In fact, God called the Babylonians earlier in Jeremiah his servant. He is using a kingdom to chastise his people. And he, the king of Babylon, is going to burn it with fire. Do you know this is exactly what indeed happened? It was burnt. The city was burnt to the ground. And you could go to 2 Kings 25 verse 9, and it will tell you as such that in two years hence, when they finally get in there, The city is going to be burned down. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. And this is interesting how the Lord says this. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king 
of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face. In fact, that is what happened. In two years, Zedekiah himself was taken up to Babylon and came face to face with Nebuchadnezzar. And Josephus reports on that meeting. There's an extra biblical account from Josephus, a historian of the time, that says when he entered the chambers, uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar read him the riot act as a covenant breaker and a promise breaker and a deal breaker and a person who didn't uh, stick to his word. And why, why would he call him that? Because Nebuchadnezzar was the one who actually set Zedekiah up on the throne. You could look at that in 2 Chronicles 36.10 and made him a puppet king of Babylon. And yet, he tried to make deals, Zedekiah did, with Egypt. He was a lying, manipulating king. But here the Lord says that it's going to burn down your city and you're not going to escape. In fact, you're going to have to be eye to eye with the king of Babylon. He's going to speak with you face to face. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. Now, that's another fascinating thing, and here's why. Because in 2 Kings 25... We're told at the end of Zedekiah's reign, remember this? You all remember this, I'll bet. Babylonians captured Zedekiah and his sons, and the sons were what? Killed. And guess what happened to Zedekiah? His eyes were poked out. And then he was taken to Babylon to meet with the king where Josephus, extra-biblical, not in the Bible, tells us about the meeting. Okay? Everybody tracking? Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah king. You're not going to die by the sword. You're going to die in peace. In other words, you're going to die a natural death, which was really interesting because he double-crossed Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) He was put in office by him, but he went and made deals with Egypt. you catching it? So what an astounding prophecy, really, that he wasn't going to die by the sword. Okay. And the former kings who were before you, they're going to burn incense for you. In other words, you're going to have sort of a, a normal sort of, you know, death and burial. Although, again, extra-biblical accounts said, say that Zedekiah, during one of the feasts of the Babylonians, was taken out in the streets and ridiculed and made fun of. And then he was put back and sort of just died a lonely death and... Anyway, that, that's another uh, account of what happened to him later in life. But Jeremiah, the prophet, verse 6, spoke these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities left against Lachish and Azekiah, for only these 45 cities remained. Okay, <laughs> I'm giving you lots of history, but this is fabulous. In Lachish... There's an archaeological find of about 1,500 artifacts found down in a pit. And several of the shards of pottery have messages written on it when this siege was just about ready to happen, when the city was just about ready to be taken, uh, and they were pleas for help uh, from from, uh, others. And so... Uh, this archaeological dig has proven that these two remained as fortified cities and that the enemy, Babylon, was coming to overtake them. Isn't that interesting? And you could read about that out on the internet. Okay, but then something really fascinating happens. And this is why I say, at the beginning of this week, I'm going, Lord, what am I going to (laughs) say? But look, watch this. Verse 8, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. So I told you all that history, all that history uh, sort of to get to this so you would understand it, that every, verse 9, man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. 
Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. They obeyed and let them go. Uh, But afterwards, here's the insidious part, here's kind of the key verse of the whole chapter, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about this for a minute. Uh, You know that I love Leviticus. (laughs) I really do. And in Exodus, you could look there. In Exodus 21, verses 2 through 14, there's this thing. Remember, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, and now... The law is in place, and they give this thing that happens uh, that's supposed to happen uh, to the Israelites, and that's this. If any man or woman becomes enslaved in the land of Israel, after six years, you could go read it, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15, Leviticus 25, uh, uh, 39 through 42. Look at this. At the end of six years... In the seventh year, that person becomes a free person and goes back to their families. It's sort of like a similar theme. Remember this? You were supposed to plant for six years, and in the seventh year, you were supposed to uh, let the, uh, the field go. Uh, is it fallow? Don't plant fallow, yeah? And so you, what were you saying to the Lord in that thing that you were supposed to do, which They never did, and that's what helped them land them in Babylon. You were saying to the Lord, I trust you, and I'm depending upon you. And the joy of not having to work but to rest and just to have the Lord provide, it was a faith-building thing, and it was joyful, and that was beautiful. And then remember, after 48 of those years, you were to take two years off because the 49th year, of course, but then the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And what happened in the year of Jubilee? If I sold my house to Catherine and Catherine sold the house to Angie and Angie sold it to John, at the end of 50 years, that house came back to me. Joy. Could you imagine that? Joy. I got into debt. I couldn't handle my debt. I needed to sell it, sell it, sell it. And then the end of 50 years, all the debts were canceled out and the property went back. Got it? So all these different things are happening in Israel, and one of them is, according to the law, after six years, if you've become a slave somehow, and there were many reasons people would become a slave. Sometimes, like a dad would send a daughter into a home to sort of be the helper and in servitude with the idea that after a certain amount of time, that daughter was going to marry into the family. People would get into debt and they would become indentured servant type things. You, you know this, right? Bible never says slavery is good. In fact, here, look, God called them to proclaim liberty. Every sixth year or every seventh year, the Lord said, send them back free. What, what was the Lord sort of saying in all of that? The people are mine. They're nobody else's. And how happy you would be at the end, you know, on New Year's Eve... Of the sixth year, can you imagine how happy you would be, right, and joyful? You'd go back. Okay, so that was happening. But, but apparently, look at this. Through all this time, all these kings in my chicken scratch, and even before that, nobody's doing that either. They weren't following the taking the year off of planting law, and they certainly weren't taking this off. And... So why do you think Zedekiah would then set the captives free? Well, one thing I think is he's getting ready. He's, you know, it's coming in on him, and they're being sieged, and maybe he has to feed all these people. And now if he lets them go, maybe he doesn't have to feed them, supply for them, house them, all that sort of thing. Maybe. How about this one? Here's another explanation. Maybe Zedekiah was sort of trying to appease God. Hey, God, I I know we haven't followed it all this time, but here, I'm going to proclaim them free now. Maybe, maybe that was it too. Nevertheless, this is 
and, and maybe I'm being cynical here, this is less of being obedient and more of being, oh my goodness, we've got caught. And I want you to think about that for a minute because when all the princes and the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. Oh, man, the feeling must have been amazing. You know, when you were in school sometimes, didn't you feel like you were just trapped? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? And I can remember, I remember the last day of school, my senior year of high school, I can remember throwing a book just sky high because I was so happy. Little did I know what was coming. But anyway, uh, uh, I was so happy to be, you know, and this is nothing compared to this. If you read the accounts of when President Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation and the, the accounts of what that meant for people who were enslaved here in this country to have their freedom. Well, here they're being let go. But watch this, the insidious part. But afterward, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. What did they see? Maybe they saw the forces coming back around the city. Oh, no, we've made a mistake. Maybe they, they're done with Egypt and they're coming back. And, oh, my goodness, what did we do? Let's go back on what we said to the Lord. And look in verse 12. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Why do you think the Lord would go there, by the way? Because they were in bondage in Egypt. They came out as slaves, the whole place or the whole people, out of the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And, then, and when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. And now you know, you know those scriptures. But your fathers didn't obey me, nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. What do you think the Lord wants for his people? He wants liberty and freedom. Every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord. Watch this. You think the Lord isn't sort of, well, I better not say it this way. My sarcastic self is coming out right here. Watch what the Lord says. Okay, you want liberty? Here's the liberty you get. You get the sword, pestilence, and famine. Because you profane my name, and I'll deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth, and I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant, which they made before me. Now watch this. When they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. That's how they made covenant back then. Abraham did it in Genesis 15. They would cut an animal in half, and they would sort of go in between. And what they would say to themselves, or what they were saying when they made the covenant is, if we break this covenant, we give ourselves over for you to cut us in pieces. We'll never break the covenant, in other words. But the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf... I'll give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be meat. And I've already read this for you. But for the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the earth, and I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his princes, into the hand of their enemies, into the hands of those who seek their life, in the hands of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to the city. They'll fight against it, take it, burn it with fire. That actually happened, and I will make the inhabitants of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Okay, watch this. I got two points. <laughs> and the first point I think that I see here is this. 
is that the Lord calls us to a life of repentance. And what we think is repentance in the American church oftentimes is nothing of repentance. What we think about repentance is, oh my goodness, a crisis is coming. And so I better hurry up, rub the lucky, lucky rabbit's foot, and do what God's called me to do or call, is calling us to do. I, maybe I can make up for lost time and just sort of do it when uh, uh, crises arise. And, you know, I am sorry for it a little bit, and I don't want to get caught for this. And so I say I'm sorry, and I'll do the thing that the Lord asked for, uh, uh, ask of me. But watch, when the crisis disappears, bang, it's not really repentance. You understand what I'm saying? And what's really interesting about this is the Lord calls us to live in the light. He, he says, in fact, he's so serious about it. He says, if you say you live in the light, but you really are living in darkness, I'm paraphrasing here now, you're a liar. I ain't paraphrasing that one. You're a liar. And the Bible tells us that godly sorrow leads to repentance. You, you know what? The Lord just wants us to be open and transparent with him and other people, to live a life of transparency. You, you know where the healing comes? The healing comes not when you, when you feel sorry that you got caught or a crisis has come. The healing comes when you're open and honest with the Lord and you just say, hey, Lord, what I did was sin and it was sin against you. And for that, I want to repent and change and move the other way. And I don't want to be someone who just changes their minds because the crisis has gone away. I read this to you a couple weeks ago. But you know how you can tell if somebody's really repentant? First of all, let me, let me tell you what repentance is. is a recognition that you sinned against God and possibly somebody else. But then the second thing that repentance is or does, do you, do you know this? When you're repentant, you're giving up all your rights to the consequences that come from the thing that you did. I want you to hear that. Because in America, what we say is, I'm sorry, but... You were the big jerk in this, and you were the, really the one who caused it. That's not repentance at all, you see? What are some of the things uh, of repentance? Well, here's some of them. Uh, it's that you uh, and I uh, never become defensive about what you did. You're repentant, so you recognize, as many times as it's brought up, you recognize that it was a sin, so, you know, you, you don't get defensive about it. You accept full responsibility for your actions. You don't say things like, since you think I've done something wrong or if I've done anything to offend you. No, you say, I have offended you. you here's another sign of repentance that is often lacking in, in us you accept full accountability or you accept accountability from others and you don't continue in the hurtful behavior and you don't dismiss or downplay the hurtful behavior. Oh, it wasn't that bad, right? And you make restitution where necessary. Now, I stole that from Pastor Steve Cornell and I told you that a couple weeks ago. But see, here, here you don't see real repentance. And that's what I think we need to know. What's real repentance in our life? I, I bet you if I went down the row, I would start with me. There's something in our lives that we need to repent of. <laughs> and we've been holding on to it. And we've been rationalizing and justifying. And when we say what we've done, sometimes we try to do it in a way where we try to control the consequences that come back to us. We're giving up that right. You get that? Here, Zedekiah gives us a really poor example he just sees the crisis, says, oh, man, before somebody finds out, okay, let's reinstitute what we should have been doing for all these hundreds of years. And then when the threat leaves, oh, let's reverse that decision. 
And of course, he's dealing with something very difficult and insidious, and that's slavery. And so that's one thing I see there. But there's something else that I see here that Jeremiah is famous for. Jeremiah gives us several times examples of something that's really, really bad that contrasts with what the New Testament shows us in Christ is really, really good. And that's this. The people of God were called, are, were called then and are called now to proclaim liberty or freedom, right? Well, when you go to Jesus in this area, I want you to see something. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4 because I think the gospel's here. (laughs) I think the gospel's here. You actually can go to the place where they think this story happened if you go with us to Israel. It's in Nazareth. And in verse 16, listen to this. Here's Jesus' first sermon. Luke, did I say 16? No, I said Luke 4, chapter, or verse 16. Here it comes. Jesus' first sermon. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, a kid. The parents, the friends, everybody knew him. And as was, or as his custom was, Jesus went to synagogue, folks. It was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, what any good Jewish young man or young lady would do, and stood up to read. He was the reader that day. He was the guy who was coming up here and reading the portion of Scripture. You ever been to a church that does that? I used to do that when I was a kid. I would read the Scripture. Well, he was called to read that day and give the the, the talk. But look, just by chance, just joking, it wasn't by chance, He gets, that day, Isaiah. He gets the book of Isaiah. And he gets this part that's found in Isaiah 61, and maybe a little bit in Isaiah 49, but whatever, Isaiah 61. He opens the book, book, he finds his place where it was written this. And mine's in red because Jesus is saying it, he's reading, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now this is from Isaiah almost a thousand years prior to the time of Christ. And he's reading this portion of Scripture, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Here it comes. Watch this. What's one of the missions of Jesus Christ? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, amazing, right? Amazing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, you know later Verse 28, all in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, rose up, thrust him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. You actually go there, too, when you go to Israel. And then passing through the midst of them, he sent him his way. I read uh, that whole thing for the dramatic effect, but the thing I want you to see is in Jesus' first sermon, he is given by God a passage almost 800 years before, 800, 1,000 years before. It's from Isaiah. It's about the Messiah. Jesus reads it, and what is right at the top of the marquee, one of the missions of the Messiah, to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's a big, big topic. And in the Old Testament, back in Jeremiah, you see that the captives were freed, but then it was revoked. In fact, most commentators call this chapter of the Bible 
the emancipation revocation. It was revoked. Now look at this. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Don't you love to read this verse? I love to read this verse, and I think you will too, or you do too. And that's this, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty. Well, turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I think it's around verse 44 or so. Go there. John chapter 8. Oh man, I'm having a tough time. I want you to see all these passages. John chapter 8, verse 44. Wait a minute. Nope, verse 31. Sorry about that. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth of God's word, what happens in God's word, what's set forth in God's word, that truth makes you free. So I want to just for five or ten minutes here, just talk about what freedom is. We read it in the Bible, but do we know what freedom is according to God's word? So I just want to take a minute uh, just to show you uh, a little bit. First of all, what are we being freed from? What are we being freed from? So, to be set free means that we're being freed from the penalty of sin, but also the power that sin has over us. And the Bible sort of describes this from stem to cern as man and women's chief need in their life. To be set free from sin, the penalty of sin, and the power over sin. Do you know this? In 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says that all of us, everyone, if you're sitting here tonight and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you're still in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22. And so your slave to the dominating power of sin. And, watch this, the Bible tells you, we are still subject to the ruler of this world, the ruler of our system, or the system of the world. That's the enemy. So, the freedom in Christ includes freedom from sin's power and from sin's penalty. And you know where you could read all about this? Romans 6, 7, and 8. Just read the whole thing together It says that we're slaves to sin, but when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, he pays the penalty for our sin, defeats the power of sin over us, and now, watch this, we become slaves to righteousness. We've gone from a different kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of the son of his love. You get that? So you could keep going. There's more of which... He frees you up from. Do you want to know a couple of them? In 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, of course, folks, listen, listen, of course we grieve when we see somebody we love die. Or we, of course, we sort of grieve when the doctor comes in and says, okay, Tim, there's nothing more we can do for you. And yet, watch, we're not afraid of death. Here's why. 
Not because it's not grieving. It is. Jesus cried with his friends. We love people immensely. But the Bible tells us that we're free from the sting of death. In other words, we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Yes, we'll be sad, of course. No, no doubt. But we don't have to be afraid of where we're going. Folks, that's freedom. I mean, what can man do to you if you're free in that way? So, Paul writes in Romans 6 again, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but you're under grace. The writer of Hebrews describes liberation from enslavement to the devil and the fear of death again. He writes about it in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. You could look that up. And we could keep going on and on. In Colossians 1, 13, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And we, it's just victory and victory and victory all through the New Testament. In fact, when you get to the book of Galatians, it says Christ gave himself a substitute for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age, Galatians 1. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, in the flesh I live by faith, Galatians 2.20. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the, the adoption as sons. We, we, listen, listen, we come into the family. And, and I could go on and on. We're rescued from this age. I said that we're redeemed from the curse. You, you, you're, I don't want you to to glaze over here, because see, this, this is everyday life. John MacArthur says this about freedom. I love this. You, you might like this. Watch. Well, what kind of freedom is it? Well, it's a freedom from the burden of sin. How, how, here, watch. Freedom from relentless guilt. Freedom from accusing conscience. Freedom from the tyranny of transgressions. Freedom from the terrible pressure and frustration of trying to be something other than you can be. Freedom from sin's dominion. I love the, that quote right there. And we could go on and on and on. But here's what I want you to see. I really want you to see this. <clears throat> freedom in Christ means... Watch this. This puts the hair on the, up on the back of my neck. Hopefully it does for you. Freedom in Christ means you can now live, when, when before you couldn't, you can now live the way in which God always intended you to live. All the impediments that were keeping you from that, all the barriers that were keeping you for, from that, for living a life fully ablaze for God, all the barriers have been removed. And now you can. Where before you couldn't. See, that's real freedom. That's freedom. And when you go back and you look at Jeremiah, and you get that, don't you get that sickening? I can sort of get a sickening feeling there when I read that chapter or verse 11 or wherever it is in there where it says here you're free oh psych you're not how how devastating it would have been to the israelites who were enslaved to be let go and to be free and then to have that be pulled back and now here's where i want to end <laughs> christ would never Revoke the liberty available to you. 
His blood paid for it all. You come into this life. I had somebody just yesterday. Oh, man. We've been going through this prayer class, and, uh, and I, uh, the one thing about this book that we're going through, Hallisby's book on prayer, is that it's so graceful. It's, it's teaching us that we're just to recognize how helpless we are and to allow God into our helplessness. And he defines prayer as that. And we're going over the book of Daniel where Daniel prayed three times a day, according to Psalm 55, verse 17, morning, noon, and night. And one of the persons in there, and don't take this the wrong way if you're listening, because whoever this person is, because we, we talked about it last night, said, man, that makes me feel so pressure. I have so much pressure, and I get overwhelmed now because Daniel did it morning, noon, and night, and it was his custom to do it, and now I got to do it, and it overwhelms me. And what we said was, time out, time out, time out. You've just taken yourself from under the grace of God and stuck yourself back under the law. No, 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 no. The Lord is your Father who loves to be with you. And he just says, now now we, get, now we say, instead of we have to do this, we say, oh, we get to go see our Father or talk to our Father. See, that's grace. And that's freedom. Just enjoying the Lord and having him enjoy you. And when you make mistakes or sin, you state them plainly and you repent and you turn and move the other way and you rest in the knowledge that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you'll never be more free than you are right now. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for this night, and we thank you for this great and glorious word, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, do a mighty work in our hearts. Lord, help us to be people who repent. In fact, if there's anybody here that needs to repent, Lord, we just pray that they would pray with you right now and just lay it out on the line. Be transparent. Lord, I thank you for the freedom that you give us in Christ. That when we come to you, all the impediments of living our life the way it was intended to be lived have been removed and we can be fully ablaze for you as you fill us to overflowing, Lord. Help us to do that day by day by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.